Hey fellow interior designers and design enthusiasts, welcome to the second episode of the Daniel House Book Club. Together we're reading and discussing the eight books every interior designer and design enthusiast should have read according to Architectural Digest. For a complete reading schedule, please visit our website, danielhouse.club, and click on the Club Bulletin tab. While you're there, consider becoming a member. Daniel House Club is a powerful tool that helps interior designers do more of what they love and less of what they hate. I'm your host, Peter Spaulding, and some listeners have suggested they'd like a quick word about me. I founded Daniel House with my brother, Alexander, in 2015. Together, we worked on a range of residential design projects from tiny apartments and historic houses to 12,000 square foot new builds. While I continued to take design projects here and there, in 2019, Alex and I converted our business to become a wholesale resource for designers like us, because we figured if they spent half as much time looking for and purchasing from the best resources for their clients as we did, they'd be grateful for a new method of procurement. Before that, I worked for some great architecture and design firms in New York City, where I also received my BA in Urban Design and Architecture History at NYU. Before leaving New York, I found the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, where I learned about the incredible world of classical design. Even though none of my recent projects have been overtly classical, I rely on the principles I learned there every day in my own practice. So I'm really excited to continue reading and discussing the lessons found in socialite Edith Wharton and architect Ogden Codman's 1897 design classic, The Decoration of Houses. FYI, from here on, I'm just going to call them Edith and Oggs, because constantly saying Edith and Ogden is a mouthful. I'm sure they'd hate my informality. If there's one lesson to learn from the decoration of houses, it's this. The walls of classical houses are always treated as an order. This is a little bit of a heady lesson, so let's fasten our seatbelts. In case you don't remember from that one or two day period in history class when your teacher touched on the architecture of ancient Greece and Rome, orders have to do with huge columns. There's the Tuscan, Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, and Composite, and I've just listed them in the order from simplest to most elaborate. If you don't remember, don't feel bad. My seventh grade history teacher introduced them by saying, those Greeks were pretty artsy-fartsy and kept thinking of new ways to make their buildings stand up. Artsy-fartsy has remained my least favorite expression ever since. And once you get to design school, the subject of the orders is basically taboo. Those were for another time, your professor may have said. But it was a mistake for them to have been so callous, because the truth of it is, there's still an awful lot of clients out there who want a house, new or old, that falls somewhere into the realm of the classical. And you can't really give it to them if you don't have some sense of how the orders work. Beyond that, the orders are great tools to learn about systems of proportion that can be applied to any work that you take on. You may be thinking back to a couple of nice colonial revival houses you visited and saying to yourself, I've been in plenty of classical houses with no sign of the orders. But you haven't. Even if there isn't a column in sight, every element of the wall of a good classically inspired house is anticipating the possibility of a column. And Edith Wharton and Ogden Codman will explain how in their third chapter titled Walls. Those of you just finding us, the Daniel House Club is a place where the job of interior design is made simple. Our members have access to wholesale pricing from over 75 great trade vendors. You can join as a free, pro, or pro plus member, depending on the level of discount that fits your needs, and shipping is always 10% of your order. 
Once you become a member, be sure to check out your dashboard, which allows you to create furniture schemes with your clients and convert those directly into bills upon approval. Visit dannyhouse.club today and start spending less time and earning more money. As I already said, understanding walls as orders, as Edith and Oggs want us to, is sort of a tricky concept initially, especially if you're not super familiar with all the elements of an order. So conjure in your mind for a second the clearest picture of a classical Greek Greek temple front you can, and let's compare it to a classic interior from the ground up. If you can't form a picture, Google parts of a Greek temple, and you'll find a lot of labeled drawings that will help you out. First, a temple sits on a lovely plinth called a stylobate, which is really just a series of steps. The top of this is the floor of your room. Or, in some cases, as we'll see, everything above what is now commonly called the chair rail in contractor language, but which Edith and Oggs and sophisticated architects refer to as the dado. Above this, we have the base of the column. If you're looking at a picture of a Greek Doric temple, there's a good chance that you won't see a base as those huge fluted columns die right into the stylobate. Compare that to an image of a temple in, an, in another order, and you'll definitely find a base. This is what has been abstracted, or rather maybe extruded, to form the details of the baseboard of your classical room. Start looking around at old buildings, especially where columns are attached to walls, and you'll see this in action everywhere. Directly above the base is the tall shaft that is what we think of first when we visualize a column. Very often, if you're looking at an elevation drawing of a temple front, between the columns you might see the blocks of the wall behind. So, when a column is not present, it is replaced by a wall, aka the column and the flat wall occupy the same place in all classical architecture. Remember this. Now, above the column shaft you have the capital. Column capitals are the most iconic indicator of which of the five orders you are looking at. Though you shouldn't take this analogy very far at all, they are sort of like the hats on the shafts. Tuscan and Doric columns have simple, serious capitals, Ionics have beautiful scrolling ones, and Corinthian and Composites have exuberant, skybound foliage that is occasionally combined with various life forms. Each presents a different attitude and is appropriate to convey a different mood. Everything above the column capital is called the entablature, and it's a series of horizontal bands that wrap around an entire building or room. Its three most important parts are, from bottom to top, the architrave, frieze, and cornice. The the architrave is fairly plain and sits just above the capitals. The frieze is above that and is the next best indicator of the order dominating a building. I say dominating because it is possible, especially in really expressive architecture of the Renaissance or the Beaux-Arts period, that multiple orders are in play at once. If the order is Doric, the frieze often has a back-and-forth rhythm of little sculptural objects called triglyphs and metopes, which could be the subject of a whole podcast, so I won't get into too much detail on those. If it's ionic, something called a pulvinated frieze, one that looks sort of like it's bulging under the weight of what's above, is often used. And in very fine classical interiors, frieze and architrave are always included as part of the crown of a room. Finally, we arrive at the cornice. 
On a temple with a pitched roof, a portion of the cornice follows the roof line and creates a triangular space on the front of the building for sculpture, which is called the tympanum. When we are faced with no pitch, we find all the ingredients that make up the crown of an interior space that we are really familiar with. I know that's a lot to take in with hardly any breath at all, but it's important we understand the orders as more than just artsy-fartsy supports for Greek temples. They are an entire kit of parts that allow you, the designer, to create endless combinations inside and outside of buildings or houses. In our last episode, we talked about Edith and Og's belief that no matter the quality of the decoration of a room, its livableness relies mostly on the positions of its doors, fireplaces, and windows. The locations of the openings within a wall are important for another reason, too. In classical work, the space between columns is called intercolumniation, and the dimensions of this space is, are not arbitrary. The dimensions of each element, including the intercolumniation, which is, as you can see, a difficult word to say, uh, is usually calculated from the diameter of whatever column is in play. Now, once you know the ideal space between columns, you can break the ideal for any number of reasons, but you have to realize you're doing it and create some piece of visual interest that holds where a column may otherwise have appeared. A window or a door in a classical room, as we'll soon see, is a great opportunity for the order to make itself known, so its position is very important. In all likelihood, you're not being hired to build a room with columns, but that's okay because our authors make the argument that it's not the material that's important, just maintaining the general lines of a room. What they mean is that it makes no difference if you have a real column on the wall, or a frescoed one, or even a woven one. Um, made in a tapestry hanging on the wall. In fact, maybe it doesn't even need to be a column, but just an indication of some vertical line, like a panel. They hadn't lived through the terrible mural paintings of the 1980s and 90s to know how badly things could go off the rails, of course. But all that stuff from the 80s and 90s sucked so much because not only had the art of decorative painting greatly diminished, but also our understanding of the proportion of the elements being painted as well as maybe our ability to understand foreground, middle ground, and background, but that's probably for another time. I think we could carry Edith and Og's line of thinking a little bit further. Let's think about a contemporary wooden paneled room. You don't have a lot of elaborate molding profiles, maybe, but you might have a panel break or a reveal, which, if you don't know, is a little gap between two wooden panels that um, separates things and maybe indicates where a panel molding might have been. Um, anyway, you don't allow those to break in any arbitrary place, but instead you relate them to windows and door openings and corners of rooms and the center of a wall, maybe. If you allow a panel to break over a major doorway, you produce a sort of authoritative dissonance, like maybe a room for a villain in a cartoon. If you center a panel over the same door, you have repose. These are current-day expressions of the same thing Edith and Oggs are discussing. They are much more successful if the door and window openings are all in the right place to make their calculation simple. Having a major doorway slightly off a panel break is a big bummer that even an average Joe will sense, if only subconsciously. Since I mentioned the dado earlier, we had better address it before moving on. The word dado in architecture refers to the space between a base and a cornice of a pedestal on which a column or statue may be placed. It's usually roughly cubic in shape, 
but when extruding it along a wall plane, it forms the pedestal for all the decoration in the room we just discussed. This device is used to raise all the wall decoration above the level of the furniture. So far from being just a piece of molding that you pick from a catalog to protect protect your walls from dining chairs banging into them, the chair rail is the indication of the pedestal lifting your whole room up. There is more in this chapter dedicated to walls, including building paintings into the walls, filling spaces between openings, as well as a lot of ranting against wallpaper. But I think you probably won't build paintings into your client's walls tomorrow, and you only need to visit Old Westbury on Long Island to see that sometimes boldly patterned paper is the perfect backdrop for paintings. It's always good to keep the context of the authors in mind. They were writing against Victorian architecture, which everyone knows may have been one of the most oppressively patterned styles in history. Did you know you can plan all of your purchasing for a design product right from your Daniel House Club dashboard? Once you're logged in, just click Dashboard to get started creating projects. The New Project button allows you to enter the details of the project you are beginning, including the percentage of your Daniel House Club discount you want to pass along to your client. After you've created a project, use the New Board button to break your project out into rooms. Then start shopping. When you come to a product you want to add to a room, use the Add to Project button to put that item into a particular client's room. Once you've shopped for everything you want your client to see, click Share so they can see the items you've selected. When they approve your perfect scheme, you can purchase the items on your client's behalf or go ahead and click Create Cart to allow your clients to check out directly and will mail you a check for your earnings. Your clients are accustomed to purchasing online. Let Daniel House Club do the heavy lifting of procurement and delivery while you enjoy the profits. And now, back to the show. Okay, moving on from walls to doors. I had a great professor who said, Architecture is all about frames, framing frames, framing frames. Frames transport us, or at least our eyes, from one place to another. Nowhere do we have a more potent opportunity to frame something than a great doorway. Of course, we need to consider the significance of the door we are framing. We don't want a monumental frame on a broom closet because everyone will try to go in there and feel duped into cleaning. On the other hand, we don't want to provide so underwhelming a frame that it's difficult to find the front door of a house unless we're following in the footsteps of Frank Lloyd Wright. As we've already seen, the openings of a room present the clearest chance for an order to appear. It is common in classical rooms to have doors surrounded by columns, or at least partial columns. Even if the room is not fancy and columns are nowhere to be found, Edith and Ogg say, one thing must be maintained. That is, a connection of the door surround with the moldings of the ceiling. They go on and on about these stupid 19th century curtain makers wasting everyone's money on very elaborate, immovable curtains hanging around and above the doorways, when they don't even pay for actual doors. As these miles of expensive, useless yardage needed a place to be attached to the walls, the details linking a door frame to the ceiling moldings were sacrificed and never returned to us after the garish curtain fad was over. But why is this a problem for them? I mean, apart from the apparent likelihood that the temple ceiling might fall to the floor, it's also because the vertical lines connecting the door all the way to the ceiling, lifted the ceiling higher. An eight or nine foot high room with vertical lines going all the way from the base to the ceiling will look taller than the same room without those lines. 
and may even look taller than a 10 or 12 foot room with no vertical articulation because the eye has no signals with which to engage at that lofty height. I'm going a bit out of order in this chapter, and I will return to some of the specifics they provide as far as really nice dimensions for door openings, but this brings us to the author's engagement with what was a fairly new concern at the time, a conflation of moral law with the actions of an architect or designer. We talked a bit about authenticity and originality last time, as well as the notion that form follows function which hopefully you debunked by taking a look at the famous Seagram's building. In stark contrast to, th to this adage, the book we're reading now says things like, architecture addresses itself not to the moral sense, but to the eye. Just a chapter before, it similarly said, it is part of the decorator's mission not to explain illusions, but to produce them. It compares this to the role of a storyteller, who can take his or her readers as far as he can make them believe. If height is your goal and you are able to make your client's room look much taller without raising the ceiling or losing the faith of your audience, why wouldn't you? If you don't want to draw attention to a closet, why treat its door as a door at all when you could obscure it as part of the rest of the wall? These sorts of devices are not really trickery. They are acknowledging that there is some larger goal at play. Now let's get practical. First, and more important than specific dimensions, Edith and Og say there is almost never a case where a large central passageway into a room would be preferable to two smaller openings at either end. These two passageways will move more people to more places and will leave the center of a room available for furniture. 12 feet is reaching the upper limit of the ceiling height in a residential setting, and the best doors in a room of that height are no taller than 9 feet. This dimension allows you the room you need to get the overdoor and crown molding in without crowding everything. The best geometry for a doorway is a rectangle that is two times as tall as it is wide, which means the widest residential passage from one room to the next ever needs to be is about four foot six. This is surprising given how many gaping holes from one room to the next I've addressed in my own work. It's a bit frightening, but recently I've been doing a lot of 4 foot 6 inch openings, and the result is really very perfect. As long as these smaller openings create vistas from one space to the next and connect to the ceiling, the impression, surprisingly, is more space, not less. The actual door that swings on a hinge should never be more than 3 feet, they say. Any w opening wider requires a double door. This is really never explained, except I'm sure by centuries of supporting evidence, but I would say it probably helps maintain the vertical rather than horizontal lines of a room. What is addressed is a peculiar habit developed by the English to give the impression of a double door by adding um, a center style to a single door. In case you're unfamiliar, the raised or thickest vertical elements of a door are called styles, while the raised horizontals are called rails. Sometimes, this center style was further divided by a narrow bead running down its center, adding to the illusion of two doors. If this center style arrangement sounds familiar, it should, as these four or sometimes six panel doors are some of the most ubiquitous in the United States, and some of the ugliest in the eyes of our authors, because their panels are too close in size to one another. In classical design, where something is divided into parts, 
One part must obviously be the most important, and therefore substantially larger than the others. In French and Italian doors, the top panel is so obviously larger than the other panels that it is clearly understood as most important. I have used this principle most in designing walls with central fireplaces. I'd probably never divide the length of a wall into three equal parts to begin my scheme. Instead, I would divide it into ten equal parts and then group those in a 3-4-3 rhythm. So, if my wall was 15 feet long, I would have a 6-foot wide hearth and two 4-foot-6 wall spaces or bookcases or whatever on either side. In this way, the fireplace is the clear focus of the overall composition, instead of each element fighting for attention. For a final word on doors, Edith and Oggs address color and material. They don't like the English very much, as they pick on them again for their stark color choices. Only there, and here in the United States, are doors made of dark, highly polished mahogany and surrounded by white painted casings. In France, doors are doors and their surroundings are almost always painted the same color, and in Italy, the trim is of warmly colored stone, and the doors are of a similarly warm walnut. Good decorators never fall for shiny things, they say. If this info doesn't help you in your own design work, it will at least help you identify the origin of one thing over another. Alex here. I just brought the Equo Desk Lamp by Concept Lighting for my office. I love it, and so does everyone who sees it. The Equo features a discreet counterweight design for the easiest adjustability I have ever experienced. Equo's innovative design has won 11 International Product Design Awards, including the renowned Red Dot Award. One finger is all you need to adjust the floating arm's position, and you can control brightness and power by sliding your finger on the touch bar. If your clients are looking for a new desk lamp, this is it. Find it at danielhouse.club in black, silver, orange, the one I chose, and chrome. Now back to Peter. Okay, now for Edith and Oggs on windows. I always tell people the quickest way to ruin a historic house is with new windows, and I think they would agree. I might actually say it's the quickest way to ruin any house. Choosing the right style and scale is totally essential to this to the success of a project. Edith and Oggs didn't have prairie and craftsman and farmhouse and all these other sales department developed terms to contend with, so their argument is boiled down to the difference between French and English or casement and sash and the dreaded plate glass. Let's get plate glass out of the way first. When our authors were writing, it was a very new material and its use symbolized wealth and status, particularly with the newly rich. Changes in glass production allowed really huge sheets of glass to be made and installed with no mullions that might destroy the view. It sucks as much life out of classical design now as it did when it was new. It's awesome in the modernist of modern, but even then sometimes I think casements with tiny metal mullions are way more engaging. From the exterior... Plate glass means there's nothing to look at for a huge period of time. From the interior, while it allows unbroken views of the nature beyond, it likewise creates huge gaps in whatever scheme you've created. Panes of glass, Edith and Og say, serve to connect the interior with the exterior and continue the rhythm of what you've established. There's a particularly offensive application of plate glass on the colonnade that extends off the north end of the front facade of the Frick Museum on 5th Avenue in New York. Where once there was a rhythm of light and shadow between columns, now there is only light and glare. Casements would have been way more successful here. 
Since I've continuously mentioned casement windows, we should probably make sure everyone's familiar. These are the windows that are set in a frame and hinge in or out to open. Sash windows, most frequently double hung, are the ones that slide up and down. Casement windows are used throughout continental Europe, and sashes are much more common in England and America. Once again, Edith and Ogg slightly favor the continent, presenting all the common complaints related to casements and the solution to each one. While they don't really say this, I think their best argument for the casement over the double-hung is that they, as they do with doors, say windows should connect to the cornice of a room. All the windows should begin at the same height, but the relationship to the ground can be varied depending on the situation. On the front of a house, which is usually more exposed to the public, they recommend stopping windows two and a half or three feet above the floor to keep people from seeing in. But on the more private side of a house, windows could go all the way down to the floor. So by using a double set of casement windows, you suddenly have something closer to a double door than a window, which really creates a nice connection to the outside. That said, there are triple-hung, counterweighted sash windows that function as doors, too. The designer Bunny Williams had her, them on her house in the Dominican Republic, and they were used on the ground floor of a Victorian house museum I visited a lot when I was a kid. They are awesome, but definitely a custom feature. One more case they make for casements comes in the form of another attack on curtains. In the old days, they say, curtains were treated as a necessary evil, very simply done to block the light. But there are some examples of casements with solid interior shutters that serve the same purpose. I've actually stayed in a couple of Italian houses that have these, and apart from being totally light-blocking, they definitely maintain a more architectural feel than curtains because they don't cover up the architrave or the trim around the windows, so they do allow that continuous vertical experience. Their chapter on fireplaces departs a little from an emphasis on orders and connection from floor to ceiling in order to give us a quick tour through the prog progression of its design and function. Basically, in med medieval times, the fire was an open thing in the middle of a room and the smoke went up through a hole in the roof until someone, I'm not sure who or why, decided to move it to the wall and have the smoke exit through a chimney instead. The fire sat on the floor and was surmounted by an enormous hood. At first, there was a mistaken correlation between size and warmth, so these things were really big. But it was soon realized that the bigger the chimney and opening, the greater the draft. In Italy, thickly constructed walls allowed the fireplace to be sunken totally into the wall, so the architecture of a room would not be interrupted by a chimney mass. The giant hood was replaced by none other than an entablature supported by pilasters or columns on either side. Edith and Ogg seemed to recognize the completely sunken solution as the most elegant. As this great size was reduced, mantles became more and more refined. In France, the practice of placing a mirror over the fire emerged, requiring the mantle to be low enough that one could see over it to look into the mirror. Up to this point, all mantles were made of some kind of stone. Only cheaply built houses in England had wooden mantles protected from fire by the use of delft tiles. In big English houses, the fireplace was often used as another opportunity for columns or pilasters linking them from floor to ceiling, which, if occasionally awkward, made quite an impression. 
But where wood was used to replicate smaller mantles, the entablature had to be set back to the wall in order not to catch on fire. And this long evolution brings us to the mantle that we know so well in the United States. Not frequently protected by Delft anymore, we typically have a firebox surrounded by some sort of tile or marble, then a wood surround that is almost flat to the wall on top and sides, and finally a projecting piece that we fill with a lot of candles and pictures and stuff. If you grew up in a colonial revival house built any time between 1900 and maybe 1995, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that fireplace design is now so varied that this classic picture may not resonate with everyone anymore. Still, the crux of the author's story is, whether big or small, in classical work, the fireplace too is detailed based on the orders. And this brings us to the finish of Edith and Ogden's chapter on walls, doors, windows, and fireplaces. I should have said chapters. In case you didn't catch it, the main point here is that in classically influenced houses, walls are orders, and all the doors, windows, and fireplaces are placed and proportioned and detailed with this fact in mind. Join me next time for something a little less heady as we discuss their chapters on ceilings and floors, entrance and vestibule, and hall and stairs. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Daniel House Book Club. Again, please visit danielhouse.club and click on the Club Bulletin tab for a complete schedule of this season's readings. While you're there, consider becoming a member. Our interior designer members enjoy the best trade discount in the industry, as well as great tools that make communicating and purchasing with your clients hassle-free. See you around the club. Thank <music> you.